If you're a guest with us, my name's Matt, and uh, I'm, I'm not sick. It's just, this, Dina calls this my sexy voice. So um, I, I'm one of the pastors here at the village. I'm, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, so um, just yelling yesterday at a football game, okay? That's the truth of it. Um, Mike, thank you. If you're a guest with us, we obviously, we, we obviously enjoy the publicly re- reading of Scripture. We think it's valuable. And so even in passages like this, in narrative, we want to read the entire thing. And um, we hope it's a blessing to you this morning. You know, I was an um, anthropology major and sociology minor in college. And after studying sociology and anthropology for three years, Dean and I got married the summer before my senior year in college, and we moved into married housing at UCI. Now, I was an anthropology major. I studied all kinds of cultures from all over the world. And I was a sociology minor. And so what I wanted to do was see how do all those cultures from all over the world interact together in the midst of a society, right? So study all the cultures in anthropology. Find myself at the time in one of the most growing and diverse cities in Orange County, sociology. How do these cultures interact together when they're together in one social environment? And I did well in my classes, and, and I was a TA, and I, you know, I, was, I was learning all of these things in theory. But when Dean and I got married and moved into married housing in UCI, my theory had to become practice. Because when I was met with that reality, you know, getting into marriage housing, and I, I'm telling you, you could have reached across the balcony and touched the other person. You know, it was such close quarters, and all the new sights and sounds and smells and music and, and all of it together in one place, all this amalgamation from people from all over the world, and everyone says, oh, it's so beautiful. And I was like, sometimes. Sometimes I just don't want to smell someone barbecuing sardines at one in the morning. I just don't want that. And, and I was intimidated. It was harder than I thought. I'd studied this for three years. I'm in the honor society. Like, I'm, I'm in deep. found myself going, am I in at all, you know, at one point? I'd say there's probably not a Christian here this morning, at least there shouldn't be, that wouldn't say that the gospel of Jesus Christ should reach across not only color but culture. Can we say amen to that? That wasn't too convincing. Can you say it again? Thank you. And there's probably not a Christian here this morning, or there shouldn't be, who wouldn't say that Christians should not seek out ways to effectively share the gospel beyond ethnic and cultural lines. But I would say it's one thing to believe these things in theory and to say amen out loud, and it's another thing to live them out in reality, isn't it? And it's becoming increasingly true in Orange County and in the city of Irvine, the Percept Group study in 2010. There's a new one out. I just haven't purchased it yet, but this makes the point, the one that was after the last Um, census in 2010 says, based upon the total number of different groups presented, this is about the city of Irvine, racial ethnic diversity in the area is extremely high. Among individual groups, Anglos represent 48.9% of the population, and all other racial ethnic groups make up a substantial 51.1%, which is well above the national average of 35%. I mean, look, think about those percentages, the differences. I mean, we, we literally live in, many of us, and our church has a footprint in the most diverse city in Orange County. 
The question is, how will we effectively share the gospel in our increasingly diverse culture? And I want to tell you up front, I've got some good news for you this morning, and I want to share it up front. It's that Jesus has a sovereign strategy to take his gospel beyond racial and cultural boundaries. And Peter knew this. Peter knew this because he had heard Jesus preach on this. In Luke chapter 24, we read that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. And then he said to them, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins, here it is, should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Just beginning in Jerusalem. And Peter knew this because Jesus had exhorted him and the rest of the apostles with us in Acts 1.8 that they'd receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, Peter even preached on this himself. In Acts chapter 2, we read that he, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children... And for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord God Peter understood this in theory. Now he was going to have to put it into practice. And the question is how? He'd heard the preaching of Jesus. He'd been exhorted by Jesus. He taught on this himself. Now how is he going to actually do it? How is the gospel going to be proclaimed by a bunch of Jewish Christians to a bunch of non-Jewish pagans, how is that going to work? Can you relate to Peter a little bit here this morning? You know the gospel should be preached across racial and ethnic and cultural boundaries in our cultural context, but you don't know exactly how that's going to happen. I think there's a few little handholds for us this morning in this text. I think the first one is this. It's going to happen one moment of clarity at a time. It's going to happen one moment of clarity at a time. It's going to happen slowly, not quickly, but it will happen. And it's going to happen slowly, one moment of clarity at a time. This came in an unusual way to us, but apparently a usual way to Peter. In verses 9 through 12 of this passage, we see Peter on a journey, went up to a housetop, sixth hour to pray. He's hungry, wants something to eat. He falls into a trance and sees the heavens opened, something like a great sheet descending led down by four corners. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, okay? Interesting dream, vision. There came a voice that said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, no, no, no way, Lord, no. I've never eaten or taken anything uncommon or unclean. Old Testament dietary laws said, you can't eat these things. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and if that sounds familiar, in the Bible when things happen three times, it's, it's pretty important. Again, the Bible doesn't have highlighter. When it repeats something, that's its way of highlighting something for us. It, what God has made unclean, do not call common. It's happened three times, and the thing was taken up and at once into the heavens. Now, we know this was a moment of clarity for Peter because it wasn't just about animals. In verses 27 to 28, when he actually shows up to Cornelius' house and he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. I shouldn't even be here. God's call us to be holy and separate 
not to get intertwined with all these pagan practices. I'm not even supposed to be here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is a vision with like reptiles and birds in a sheet. And now Peter's telling him, God's shown him through the vision that, that not to call any person common or unclean. This was an amazing supernatural moment of clarity for Peter. Have you had a moment like that? I mean, <laughs> maybe not like this, quite like this. But you've had a moment of clarity recently around this issue. Jesus wants his gospel to cross ethnic and racial and cultural barriers and boundaries. Maybe you've gotten your clarity, not through a vision or a trance or a dream, but by opening up your Bible in the morning and reading through our scripture reading plan. By praying for people who are different from you and, and realizing that God's pressed them on your heart and you're praying for them. Maybe you've heard a sermon. Maybe Jesus will use this sermon this morning. Maybe you've been in a conversation with another Christian and a moment of clarity has come. Maybe this season over the last year and a half has brought some clarity. And I'm telling you, around this issue, please chew the meat and spit out the bones. Spit them out far because there's all kinds of stuff going on today, even in the church, that is not the heart of God. Chew the meat and spit out the bones, please. Maybe it's a missions trip and you've gotten to other, some other place in the world and you've seen different people from different places and cultures and it's impressed you that they live around you also and, and what you've done overseas has, has kind of inspired you to do something across the street. Whatever it might be, have you had a moment of clarity lately? If you have, don't miss it. Don't miss seeing it for what it is. It'll happen one moment of clarity at a time. Secondly, I believe it will happen one act of sovereignty at a time. One act of God's sovereignty at a time. We, we've already seen this in this section of Acts, and I need to mention this because this whole section of the book, if you study together, it's, it's, it's moving in this direction. And I, and I want to just take one minute to show you. We see it with Philip and the Ethiopian official a few weeks ago. The angel of the Lord appears to Philip, sends him to the Ethiopian eunuch. So we've got Philip, a Jewish man, and an Ethiopian eunuch who's from the court of official of Candace. Like God's bringing them together in a sovereign moment to share the gospel. We see it in chapter 9 with Ananias and Saul. There was a disciple named in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, look, go down to this place, to this street. Get this guy, Saul. He's going to come and meet you. He's seen a vision. A man named Ananias is going to come to him. And so Jesus arranges this again, the sovereign moment where he brings Ananias and Saul together. Ananias going, are you sure I'm supposed to talk to this guy? And, and he brings them together in a sovereign moment. And now this is like, it's building. It's like, it's one thing to get Philip to the Ethiopian. It's another thing to get Ananias to Saul. Now God's getting Peter to Cornelius. Okay, it's not supposed to happen. The average Jewish Christian is going to read this and be like, this is not supposed to happen. Oh, it's happening. And the progression is building. Verses 1 and 2 tell us at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. As a guy who's more Italian than anything else, that makes me happy. Okay. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms, generously to the people, prayed continually to God. By the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in the vision an angel of God coming to him, saying to him, Cornelius, what is it? Your prayers have been answered. Send men to Joppa, bring Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When we all see this, this Jesus is setting this up again. Verse 19, when 
Peter was pondering this vision. The Spirit said to him, look, there's three guys. They're going to be looking for you. I mean, he sets this whole thing up. They're going to be directed by a holy angel to send for you to come, come to his house and hear what you have to say. I mean, God is moving and he's acting by his sovereign authority and power to create these sovereign, these circumstances, these unbelievable providential meetings. It's all, he's behind it all. Jesus is acting sovereignly. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus doesn't only sovereignly act through trances and dreams and visions and angels. He also acts through more simple forms of his sovereignty, things that we call divine what? Appointments. We say often that was a divine appointment. Yes, of course it was. It was divine because it was him and it was appointment because he appointed it. He constructed it just like he did with Ananias and Saul or with Philip and the Ethiopian or with Peter and Cornelius. It's, it's a divine appointment. The place that he has planted you to live and to work, the place that you live, the place that you work, the classes you were able to get this semester, the people that you sit next to in those classes, the street that you live on, the kids that your kid goes to school with, the families that they play on a team with. It's sovereignly orchestrated by God. And there will be people that are not like you in those places. And that is sovereignly orchestrated by God. For Dean and I, it's, it's this walking trail we go on. We do prayer walks during the week and it's a guy named Manuchet, you know, who's from somewhere in the Middle East and he speaks broken English and we try to have conversations and I think he actually believes something about Zoroastrianism, which might be, he might be from Iran and just trying to figure it out. How do we get in touch with him? How do we talk with him? For us, as Peter and Annie a while back, they were just, they're just here from, from China. And the names they chose were Peter and Annie. And they spoke less English than Manuchet, but we were, we're trying. We tried. Believing that Jesus allows them to walk on a walking trail at the same time that we are most days of the week. There's got to be something to that, don't you think? I want to ask, do you see all these things and all these people attached to them as sovereignly planned by God? And do you see his sovereign hand over these things? I mean, who is your Ethiopian official? <laughs> Who's your Cornelius? One moment of clarity at a time, one act of sovereignty at the time. Let me, let me give you one more. One step at a time. Like if, if you were feeling a little overwhelmed this morning, like I felt when I, when I was looking at the married housing at UCI, like how in the world is this going to work or happen? I'm telling you, one moment of clarity at a time, one act of God's sovereignty at a time, and it's going to happen one step at a time. If your heart's racing, take a deep breath. It's going to happen one step at a time. Because even though Jesus is sovereign and he's serious, let me tell you, Jesus is serious about this. He's not playing games. The whole thing was orchestrated this way. From Abraham forward, that all the nations of the world through Abraham would be blessed. God is serious about this. And he's sovereign. He has the power to accomplish it. And he's systematic in the way he's doing it. I want to tell you this morning, he's also sensitive about the way he's doing it. The way he's carrying out his plan through us. 
Psalm, the Psalm, Psalms remind us, I think it's Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows their frame and he remembers that they're only dust. Like God knows us. He knows how weak and broken and fragile we are. He knows our idiosyncrasies. He's patient like a father. He knows how difficult it is, listen to me, for anyone from any culture to pursue gospel relationship and friendship beyond their culture for the sake of Jesus, the one who's over every people and culture. So all this makes sense. It's not easy. So Jesus takes his time. I have to take you back a couple chapters again in verse, in, in chapter 9. This is, this is what happens. First, he goes to Lydda. Lydda is the capital of one of the ten local governments of Judea. It's, it's pretty familiar. So step one is go to Lydda. Go to Lydda and meet some people there. Aeneas. <laughs> Peter heals him and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, they turn to the Lord. Step two, go to Joppa. Joppa. This was a really more a distinctly Greek city. So now he's in a Judean city. Now he's going to a Greek city. And in Joppa, he meets Tabitha. We see that he raises her. He, and, and many believe in the Lord there. So Luke is quickly trying to tell us that the same things that happened in Jerusalem among a bunch of Jewish Christians, those same things can happen in other places and in other cities and among other cultures with non-Jewish people as well. And they can become Christians but Luke's also trying to show us that, that Jesus has a definite and a designed plan. And there's a progression here. I want to tell you this. Jesus is easing his way into Gentile territory. It's chapter 9 of the book of Acts, chapter 10 this week. Jesus is easing his way into Gentile territory. For, for whose sake? Honestly, this week as I looked at this, I thought, I think for the sake of Peter. And for the sake of all those like him who need a little help with this idea, if not in theory, for sure in practice. Then we get to step three, Simon the Tanner. And it's interesting, Simon the Tanner is like, a, like an in-between character. It said he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon a Tanner at the end of chapter nine. Tanners were considered unclean by very culturally sensitive Jews because they came in contact with dead animals. They're, they're tanners. But Peter was apparently comfortable staying with Simon the Tanner. It was like a, a go-between for him and who, Cornelius. is one step further. It's like a step and a half. It's like a half a step. So Jesus is breaking these steps down very small for Peter. I hope you see it. I think Luke wants us to see it this morning. Peter would need a little bit more revelation from God to take it to the next big step staying with Gentiles in their home, and that's what happens in Caesarea. Step four is Caesarea now. So now he's in a place where he's in really the capital of Judea, of the, it's an official seat of the Roman procurator, like he's in Gentile territory now in Caesarea. And step one, step two, step three, step 3.5, step four. What's the next step for you this morning? And Jesus is serious about this, but he's sensitive to, to, to the way you're progressing. And I don't want to take anything away from the seriousness of this. He's going to press you in this direction. 
but what, what's your next like half step? What's your next step toward engaging different people from different places and different cultures and different languages and different former religious backgrounds, different color skin, different cultural practices, different ethnic backgrounds and customs? I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, maybe it's just trying different cultural foods. Honestly, maybe that's a first step for you. It's like a half step. It's like, I'm going to go to an Indian restaurant, but I don't even know if I like that food, but I'm going to go. I mean, I don't mean to even be silly. I'm, I'm serious. Maybe for some of you, that's like a first step. Go try some different food. Maybe visit a different cultural site around our city. Visit a different, different ethnic church community. That might be actually a good middle ground. We're talking about half steps. That might be a good middle ground. Go visit a church that is filled with people that are not a lot like you. Maybe organize a block party and, and get around your block and say, hey, can everyone bring some food, right, that's, that's from where they're from? Like, would you just cook a traditional meal? Let's do a block party, but everyone have like a food fair on your street or something like that. Or maybe, maybe like Peter and Cornelius, maybe we helpful to pray at the ninth hour. Maybe be helpful to pray every afternoon for a little while for Jesus to connect you with Cornelius. That's what was happening. Peter was praying. Cornelius was praying. And Jesus was moving. Maybe your next step is I'm going to begin to pray every day at my lunch hour while I'm eating Indian food <laughs> that Jesus would connect me with someone from Nepal. I don't know. Next, one moment of clarity at a time, one act of sovereignty at a time, one step at a time, one gospel presentation at a time. One gospel presentation at a time. Listen, this, this, I, I almost took this out of my notes, but I'm, I'm gonna, I want to say this. So I want, I, want, I want your attention for a moment, please, if you've wandered off. There are a lot of professing Christians in our cultural moment today that are becoming increasingly vocal and bold about taking their lives, taking their lives across ethnic boundaries. I wanna to get to know different people. I wanna understand. I wanna understand what it's like to be like this or like that. I, I, they're becoming very vocal and very bold about taking their lives across racial and ethnic boundaries. But the question this morning I'm asking is, how many of them are as vocal and as bold about taking the gospel across those racial and ethnic boundaries. As you can tell, I'm a little fired up about this because I've been reading and hearing and, and I'm just gonna, I wanna say it as straight as I can. Jesus hasn't given you a desire to take your life across racial and ethnic boundaries so you can feel good about yourself. In an increasingly diverse culture, but he's done it so that you can take the good news to everyone who's a part of that culture, no matter what their skin color is or what country they moved here from or what their first language is. Jesus has not given you this desire to earn social credit. He's given you the desire to earn kingdom credit so that on the other side of, of, of this life, you're gonna hear well done, good and faithful servant who shared the gospel, who like Peter opened your mouth, staring across someone who's really different from you. I 
And what we've seen over the last two weeks here in Acts is that taking the gospel across racial and ethnic boundaries, it might not always be as hard as we think it's going to be. And Jesus has teed up people the last few weeks in the book of Acts. <laughs> Acts 8, Acts 9, now here in Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a, a man named Cornelius. He was the centurion who was known from the Italian color. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. I mean, we know Jesus has already been at work in his life drawing Cornelius through his belief in monotheism, not the polytheism of his culture, and believing in the God of the Bible somehow. And we also know that Cornelius has been praying for something specific to happen in the context of this story. Probably praying for someone to tell him about Jesus. In Acts 10, he says, your prayers and your alms have been ascended and is a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. The angel tells him, your prayers have been heard. What prayers? We don't know. But it must have been something like this based on the context of this passage. He must have prayed something like, oh God, I want to know you, but I don't know how. I know you're not part of this pagan religious idolatrous, polytheistic stuff going on around me. I, I know deep down inside that I'm not at peace with you, but I want to be. And will you please send someone to me? It, it must have been a prayer something like this. We don't know, but based on the context, he has to be praying that, that someone is coming to share the gospel with him because it says in verse 33, now I sent at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God. Why? To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius is probably going, God, if you're real, show me who you are. Even though Jesus has been at work in Cornelius in some way, giving alms, giving him a glimpse rather of, of what it would be like to live with him, he still needed to hear about that. Again, I want to remind you that the phrase, share the gospel, and if necessary, use words, is, it's cute. It's just not true. The only way to share the gospel is to use words. In this context, the, the pagan religious systems of the day were all focused on appeasing God's anger. Did you know that most people that are religious believe that God is angry with them? And, 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 and I know that even as a Christian that believes, that, that, who, who believes in grace, sometimes you feel like God is angry with you. Imagine how someone who is, is under a works-based system feels all the time, that God is angry with them. This was the context of this scene Cornelius calls on God to send someone to tell him what's true about God. And you know what's true about God? You know what's true about Jesus? Is that Jesus shows no racial or ethnic partiality in the idea that we can have peace with God. That God is angry at sin. Yeah, God is angry at sin. Because it breaks things, it ruins things. Look at what it's done to the world, what we've done to the world because of our sin. Of course God's angry at sin, but God made a plan for that. He sent Jesus 
to live a sinless life before God on our behalf, to die on the cross in our place and for our sins and to raise to give us a life we could never have, otherwise a life that now finds itself at peace with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus shows no racial or ethnic partiality in this. Peter opened his mouth. Again, Peter opened his mouth. Share the gospel and it is necessary to use words. Peter opened his mouth. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of what? All. He is Lord of all. Christianity isn't and it has never been a white Western religion. It's the outworking of God's sovereign call on his people from the days of Abraham. Jesus came to bring peace in everyday, ordinary things of life. Peter says, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee and after the baptism of John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And God was with him. Jesus was meeting the everyday ordinary needs of people right in front of them. As evidence, he, he was bringing peace into people's lives, into their daily lives, as evidence that he could bring peace in the life hereafter. Jesus came to bring peace for the, for the life to come. That's what Peter says next. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. There's the cross. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear. There's the resurrection. Not only to, not to all people, but to us who were chosen to be witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We saw this. We knew this. We, we were there. We touched him. We talked with him. Jesus came to bring peace instead of judgment. To this person, Cornelius, who likely believed that God was angry with him because of his sin. God is angry at sin. That he could never do enough to appease the gods. We can never do enough to appease God. But someone can, and someone did. Jesus did. Again, Jesus lived that perfect life before God that we could never live. He lived a life we could never live, a perfect life before God. He died the death we should have died. The consequences for that, God is angry at sin and poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. Jesus rising to give us a life we could never have otherwise at peace with God now. He commanded us to preach the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus does judge everyone for sin. To all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Christians aren't judged for their sin anymore when they place their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. That judgment was placed on, on Christ on the cross. He bore our wrath for us. Amen? Do you need peace with God this morning? Did you pop in visiting us from, from former religious background? You think God's angry with you? Christians believe God is angry at sin because he's righteous, he's loving, he's just. And God poured out his anger on sin on Jesus on the cross so it doesn't have to be poured out on you when you place your faith and your hope and trust in Jesus. One, mo one movement of the spirit at a time. 
Like, well, how is this going to happen? How am I, as a, this person, going to come to this person? Like, I get it. One moment at a time, one movement. This is, this is cute, Matt. One step at a time, one sovereignty at a time. You know, how, one movement of the spirit at a time. How is it going to happen? God's spirit's going to move, and, and he's the one that's going to make it happen. All of it is dependent on the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. That's awesome. Like, it's amazing. Peter preaches like everyone's like, yep, believe it. <laughs> and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on these pagan people that believed in all these polytheistic ideas that were culturally and religiously and probably economically and all, all, all kinds of things different from them. They were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. It took nine chapters in the book of Acts for the Spirit to move on a group of non-Jewish people, and it was perfect timing. And baptism was evidence of it. Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain with them for some days. I want to tell you, Village Church, this is all possible. Like this, this, Luke is recording the book of Acts in the life of the early church to show the church this is possible. Like it is possible for you to share the gospel with people beyond racial and ethnic and cultural boundaries. Not only is it possible, that is God's plan. It's always been his plan. So it's not only possible, it is, listen to me, it's probable. It's probable because it's the plan of God. God's going to make it happen. He's going to use his Holy Spirit to orchestrate these circumstances. For some of you, you're thinking, okay, okay, I, okay, the ones and the ones and the ones. The one thing, one, one moment, one moment of clarity, one act of sovereignty, you know, one time I'm preaching the gospel, one step at a time, half a step at a time. Man, I've tried this. I've been there, done that. I'm not, I'm, I've tried this. I'm telling you, I've tried it. I'm not very good at this. I've already failed at this. And I would say, well, then you're just like Peter. You may fail at least one time. You're probably going <laughs> to. If you haven't tried this yet, you're going to fail. And if you've tried it yet already, you know you failed. And you're going to fail at this. Just like Peter. For all of Peter's success here, I mean, this is, I mean, what Peter was open to, it's hard even to put into words what Peter had opened himself to and the steps Peter had taken. It's hard to even put that in words in our cultural context, just how much Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles hated Jews and just the divide between them ethnically and culturally and religiously. Like, it's hard to even put into words how how different they were and what a big deal this is. Like, Peter is a stud here. Like, th this is amazing stuff. But in Galatians 2, we read about a time when Peter was eating with non-Jewish, now Christians, Gentile Christians, and some Jewish Christians showed up. When Cephas came to Antioch, that's Peter's name, I opposed him to his face, Paul said. Like Paul said, I got in his face because he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating with Christians who were non-Jewish Christians. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself. He went to a different table. 
fearing the circumcision party, fearing those very strict Jewish Christians who say, you have to still follow all these customs of the Jewish law. And what happened? Because it was Peter, the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, Barnabas, we hear nothing negative in scripture about Barnabas, but right here we do. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Like Peter failed big time. And not with other non-Jewish, non-Christians, with other Jewish Christians. Like <laughs> he failed with Christians right in front of him. Village Church, I gotta tell you that this brings me a little bit of comfort. I'm not happy that this happened to Peter, but I'm happy it's recorded for people like me, maybe for people like you. And yet, Peter went on to write two books of the Bible. A third, if you include kind of his, he being behind the writing of Mark, like after this moment, Peter penned two letters to people that were sharing the gospel in Jewish and non-Jewish places. He, he got behind the, the writing of the, the book of Mark, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, like, Peter pressed through that failure and he, he kept going. And his writings have been written by, read and believed and helped people to believe in Jesus from every continent on the face of the earth today. It's amazing. Peter failed and you and I will fail. You know who never fails? You know, Jesus never fails. Because Jesus has a sovereign strategy to take his gospel beyond racial and cultural boundaries. And Jesus has not failed in this. And Jesus will not fail in this. You want to be part of it? I believe you do. Will you pray with me? Where we fail so often. Sometimes it's hard to believe that, <laughs> that your forgiveness still extends, but that's what your word says, and so that's what we believe. We thank you for giving us, for forgiving us of at the worst any prejudice. At very least from from apathy and everything in between. Thank you that where we have failed, you will never fail. Thank you that you will accomplish your purposes through us, just like through Peter. Lord, would you help us to see who might be our Cornelius? Would you speak to us? Would you set up that providential meeting or moment would you give us the words to say in the moment just like you said you would? And would you help us to remember this morning that unless there's other, any formerly Jewish person who's become a Christian and who's a Messianic Jew in this room, we are, we are all grafted in. We are a long way from Jerusalem. And so we thank you that you've invited us to yourself 
that you've set up those moments where people have shared the gospel with us and by your grace we believed and here we are. And so Jesus, we respond by thanking you, by praising you, by worshiping you, singing to you. We do it now in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.